We have a special treat for you guys this afternoon. Rabbi Amy Eilberg's here with us, and so I'd like to just take a few moments to introduce her. Yay! Um, she was here in town giving a book talk here at Etz Chaim just a little bit before, and I was speaking this week with our good friend Ellen Bob, who's the executive director here at Etz, and she said, you know, I think Rabbi Amy would be a real blessing to your community. I was like, good enough for me. So thank you guys for welcoming her. She is the first woman ordained as a conservative rabbi by the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And I would just like to say as another female clergy member, way to go, sister. So, yeah. And I've been appreciative of those, like, preach white girl preach from, like, the back of my, so I might shout that to you occasionally. Just preach white girl preach. That'll be a first for you. I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> it was often a first for you. It was one time a first for me as well. She's the co-founder of the uh, Bay Area Jewish Healing Center, and she directed the center's Jewish hospice care program, served as the founding co-director of the Yedida Center for Jewish Spiritual Direction, which for those of you who know, we've done some spiritual direction work here at Spark, and we had a whole retreat last fall for that. That fits really nicely into a lot of what we've done here. Presently, you're teaching at the United Theological Seminary of Twin Cities in Minnesota. So if we had our Minnesotans here this weekend, you guys can come and say hi. And she directs interfaith dialogue programs for the J. Phillips Center for Interfaith Learning in St. Paul, Minnesota. And she is an author. So she has an amazing book available in the back and also available online. Um, and she's going to be teaching a little bit on that book and on peacemaking as spiritual practice. And the book's entitled From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace. Rabbi Amy, come and join us. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I am just blown away at the gift of this invitation. Um, I'm a close, close friend of Ellen Bob's, the executive director of um, Eitz Chaim, and of course I've been here many times, and um, I just felt like somebody gave me a million bucks when someone said, you know, there's a church that meets at Eitz Chaim. And then I got on the phone with Danielle, and she could not be a more delightful human being. Um, it makes me so happy to be here with you. And, 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 and I noticed that when I sat down and, like, the first song, I could totally sing along with you because... you. On that song, your theology and mine were very similar. It was just fine, and I could just sing and pray the same thing you were praying. And then there were some pieces um, of liturgy that I could pray as you were praying, but that they were different and they were not mine. And that was beautiful, too. I, I didn't have to run out of the room because you and I, there are differences among us. We could still be praying here together. I, I could just go on. I'm just so happy that you are here at Eitz Chaim and that, and that I am here with you. And then you blessed the children. As some of you may know, that uh, liturgical blessing, may God bless you and keep you, um, is the way Jew, Jewish parents bless their children every Friday night at the dinner table. So my little girl, who was about to turn 29, you know, until she left home, and just to see you guys, and in the Hebrew and the English, I just, um, I feel very happy to be with you. So I think what I want to do as kind of author's prerogative is tell you the story of my book, 
um, when my book was published, this is my first book, my daughter, then 27, wrote to me. She calls me Ima, which is Hebrew for mom. She wrote to me, Ima, you gave birth again <laughs> to a book. <laughs> so I want to tell you this story of this, um, this next, you know, fruit, uh, fruit, of, fruit of my loins. Um, I've been a rabbi for 30 years. The first 20 years, I did mostly pastoral care uh, and counseling in a number of different ways, in hospitals and in hospice and then spiritual direction. Um, much of it with the Jewish community, but some uh, multi-faith. And um, then I, I had other plans and um, a revelation, a kind of spectacular call uh, came to me when my husband and I happened to be visiting a place that I had long intended to visit in Israel called Neve Shalom, Wahat al-Salam, Oasis of Peace, uh, which is a town uh, between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem that was created in the mid-'70s with the specific intention of being a place where Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs would live side by side. Uh, not an intentional community like they're praying all day, just the intention was that they... We're making community um, together, and the community is home to a place called school, the School for Peace, which is a regional um, think tank, training center, um, peace center. So they bring, they do all kinds of work about conflict transformation, very high level, um, much of it related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so they have conferences for Israeli and Palestinian environmental workers, and Israeli and Palestinian journalists and Israeli and Palestinian. So they do a ton of that kind of work. And their flagship program is a three-day program in which uh, they bring about 100, each time they bring about 100 16-year-olds, half of them Israeli Jewish and half of them Israeli Arab. There's, that's the language that they use. They're different, right? That's the language that's common in that community. So I'll use that um, to, to honor that. Um, the kids, it's voluntary. The kids know where the, why they're coming. And um, they know they're going to spend three days of very, very intense work together. First, rehumanizing. Like, oh, you have a dog. I have a dog. You know, you have a brother. I have a brother. First, like we're human beings or whatever. But then really diving into very, very um, hard stuff. So we happened by chance, if you believe in chance, uh, my husband and I to land at uh, Neve Shalom at the School for Peace on the first day of the, when the kids were just beginning to, uh, take the first steps into relationship together. Um, what in any, you know, it was, this, it was the beginning. They were learning each other's names and they were playing, you know, games and starting groups. You know, they were doing icebreaker activities like the first day of any youth group conclave. It would have been, you know, the activities were completely ordinary except there was nothing ordinary at all about these kids being in the same place together because the societies are really quite separate. Um, so, you know, the content I was watching was really nothing spectacular at all. It was like really learning each other's names. And then way too soon, the person who had driven us said, you know, it's time to go home. We want to, like, give you a tour and then take you back to Jerusalem. And I found myself riveted to the floor. And I am more a heart and mind sort of person. You know, we, we experience the world in different ways. Um, I usually experience the world through emotion and through, through words, but it was a physical moment of revelation. And when I tried to talk 
first to my husband and then to my stepson who we were, you know, and then to, you know, whoever, I realized that every time I told the story of what had happened for me that day, I made this motion. Now, um, I, I don't literally believe in a God who, like, rolls up people's sleeves. My, my God is kind of l- larger um, than that. So I don't, I don't mean this literally that God sort of came in and rolled up my sleeves, but that this was the message that I received from God saying, do something. Find, your, find some way to make yourself of service to the cause of peace. So uh, our visit in Israel ended. I went back. I had just moved. I'd been in, living in Palo Alto. Went back to my new home in suburban St. Paul, Minnesota, and waited for further instructions. Guess what? They didn't come with quite the same clarity as the first one had. So I was sort of on, like, okay, I, I'm ready. Um, what am I supposed to do? I'm a rabbi, middle-aged rabbi, St. Paul, Minnesota. How am I supposed to serve the cause of peace, especially for Israelis and Palestinians halfway across the world? So I just bumbled along for a while and continued to pray and tried to discern where was I supposed to be and tried out a few places that didn't feel like they were true to the call. But there was this really powerful engine of calling in me. Um, and I kept looking and I kept, kept trying. And over the period of this, it's now 11 years and no sign that it's, that it's going away anytime soon. Um, I got involved in mostly, mostly three areas of activity. Um, one is interreligious dialogue. I even, I mean, this was a godsend. Mo- vast majority of people who do a lot of interreligious dialogue don't get paid for it. You know, it's either part of another job or they do as well. I actually got a paying job in interreligious dialogue, which should have been, you know, it was a surefire proof that, you know, this is where God wanted me to be. So um, I got involved in bringing Jews and Christians and Muslims and some Buddhists and Hindus and non-believers. Um, together to learn about one another's traditions, um, and, and most especially what was closest to my heart was having them discovering one another as human beings beyond the boundaries, across the boundaries. I got very deeply involved in a big, big problem still. You read the newspaper, you know, it's no secret. Uh, within the Jewish community, we have a huge problem within the American Jewish community and within the Israeli Jewish community um, of how to talk to one another across ideological difference. It's a little like Democrats and Republicans. It's a little like pro-life, pro-choice. It's a little like, you know, when there are these really defining issues that people feel really passionately about, and that's a blessing, right? That sense of passion. Um, and then people get crazy and awful in the way they engage in name-calling and demonization, really, right? Within, you know, we're about to have the high holidays. I don't know so much. I don't think it's so much of a problem at Eitzchayim, but there's synagogues all over the country where there are going to be thousands of Jews sitting in the congregation, and there are people in that room whom they think are horrible because they're for the Iran agreement or they're against the Iran agreement or, you know, whatever. So a few of us have been working on how can we bring best practices and best theory from the conflict resolution field and also from the sacred texts of Jewish tradition. This Jewish tradition has a love affair with the subject of peace. 
there are gorgeous texts and teachings and practices. Almost every time you open any Jewish book, you find multiple, multiple prayers of peace and kind of odes to, to peace. Um, so it's, it's a heartbreak, you know, that there's some, that conflict is being handled so badly um, in, our, in our community. So I've been really drawn into that. And because the call originally came in the context of Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict, I made, during this period, a bunch of uh, trips to, to Israel, which was not new for me, but to Palestine, which was new for me, um, because I realized I really didn't know any Palestinians. So there were sure, sure not going to be any way that I was going to be able to help in the cause of peace in any, you know, in any sense if I only knew one side of the story. Um, and, and I also knew that I needed some practice doing some really um, challenging listening. And at first it was really challenging for me. Um, lit, love, growing up as someone who really loved Israel, listening to Palestinians um, say really harsh things about Israel, and it was hard. So it was, it was my uh, baptism, you, you might say, you know, really practice. It was a place of practice. Um, and then at some point, um, I realized I, I did no, like, major roll-up-your-sleeves or skywriting kind of, you know, version of supernatural calling. Um, but it began to become clear to me that I was supposed to write a book um, because I had been studying like mad, um, trying to learn as many of the texts, of classical Jewish texts about peace and about conflict and about what leads from uh, estrangement and suspicion um, and hatred to reconciliation and respect and even embrace and love. Um, there was so much wonderful stuff that I wanted to get, out of, to get out there for Jews to know about and for people beyond the Jewish community um, to know about, especially since reading the newspaper, you wouldn't necessarily know that, that Judaism was a tradition that is in love with the, with the subject of peace. It's hard, hard to say and true. Um, and I then had this, what I thought was a quite interesting body of experience in helping to bring people together, observing people coming together across the line of religion, across lines of ideology, um, across national lines, lines of conflict, lines of estrangement, lines of um, profound wounding um, and hurt. Um, so the book is a uh, kind of a conversation. Oh, and then there's a little bit of sort of conflict, contemporary conflict theory um, in there, which is beyond fascinating. I kept saying, if I'd been younger, maybe I would have just dropped everything and gone and gotten a PhD in conflict resolution. But clearly that wasn't where God wanted, you know, what God wanted me to do. So the book is kind of a conversation between some of what I have found and loved in Jewish tradition, Jewish wisdom about um, the process of going from enemy to friend in the end. I'll tell you why I, why I named the, the, the book that way. Um, so between the texts, the conversation between the texts and the Jewish wisdom um, on, on one hand and the lived experience of um, watching people try and sometimes struggle and sometimes succeed uh, to, to cut, create relationship across those lines. And, and one of the really important things that I learned is although, of course, um, conflicts of different scope are different. Scope matters. I mean, a, a marital conflict is not the same thing as, as war between two nations. Right? Those are not the same thing. And yet they have more in common than I would have thought. And actually lots and lots of conflict theorists usually, you know, 
academics don't agree with one another you know, about anything. Everybody has their own theory. But there was a remarkable range of agreement. Um, and maybe it shouldn't be so surprising that it's human beings um, in, in either case, you know, micro or macro, and what happens to us in conflict. What happens when someone becomes the enemy to us? Um, how we see them, how we feel about them, and the stories we tell about them, and what happens inside us, the way in which we um, harden and tighten and distance and close down. Our capacity for curiosity closes down, and our capacity for complex thinking closes down, and our capacity for love and respect closes down, which is what happens when you think a bear is about to run across the room and maul you or your child, right? So our, our bodies, our brains, oddly, you know, still respond to ideological difference with that. <gasps> and, and, and we, all the, the best of us shuts down because our whole being is just set on, I got to defend myself against this really scary thing. It's really scary that another Jew like me who's supposed to be like me, thinks X or Y or Z, or it's really scary that someone has a different theology than I do. It's really scary that someone has a very different political conviction than I do. How can it be that that exists in the world? There's this, there's this, there's this sort of tightening, which makes people then carry on their arguments as if they were embattled, as if they were you know, trying to kill a bear or kill an, en- kill an enemy. So all of that was, it was really clear to me where the book was going. It was almost like a pregnancy, you know, in me. It was growing in me. I had to just, like, push it out. And then I'm sort of getting to the end, and I thought, you know, like, how am I going to end this book, and where is this going, and what's going what's to make it really like a whole book and not just a series of things? And I didn't realize at the beginning, but I came to the conclusion that what, what the book was really about for me um, was about spiritual practice. Um, I, I believe in theory. I believe in conflict theory. There's amazing stuff out there. And I believe in learning about best practices among mediators and, and conflict facilitators and all of that. I learned a ton, uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. But in a way, when I asked myself, what does it mean to be a seeker and pursuer of peace? And I, and I mean that as a direct quote from Psalm 34, seek Thank you. Blah, blah, blah. Come, my children, listen to me. Who loves life? Um, Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. We we sing it in synagogue. We sing that in synagogue all the time. I I don't know. I wish I could, like, what are people thinking? What are people thinking that means? What's clear to me is that that commandment, seek peace and pursue it, is not just a commandment for diplomats or for sociologists, or for people who live on the front lines of some very obvious physical conflict. That is a commandment for everyone, for every one of us in the midst of our lives. Each one of us touches many people, and many, many times a day, in different ways, each of us has moments of choice It doesn't always feel like we can be on autopilot and it doesn't feel like we have a choice, but we actually do have moments of choice in this situation. Am I going to serve the cause of peace or am I going to pour 
kerosene on an already inflamed situation. We have many such choices of various kinds in our lives, really, I think, literally every day, but certainly, you know, in the course of our lives. So, th- so the fundamental question of the book came, was for me, so what does it mean for an ordinary human being without, you know, a particular role vis-a-vis conflict? Um, how does a person become and be a seeker and pursuer of peace? So then I, I got interested in... Um, a system, I won't belabor the details, but Judaism has its own um, kind of set of virtues and a a practice, which is called Musar, um, which is kind of, uh, how does it go, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like spiritual behavioral therapy. It's like, it's a a day-by-day practice system for how how to develop your soul, how to make your soul purer and stronger and how to be more of, to become more of the person that you want to be. Um, so, so I write in the book and, and then I was struck by, you know, the virtues that are in that system or any other system of, you know, virtue ethics that all the great religious traditions talk about compassion and kindness and respect and courage and curiosity. And those, you know, those are virtues in all kinds of ways, not just about conflict. That's what, that's what righteous living is, is made of, and all the traditions, each in its own you know, particular way, all the traditions teach it. But then I realized, that, like, if I look at that list, those are exactly the traits that are needed for us if we want to be seekers and pursuers of peace. What, what are the muscles that I need to strengthen in order to be a person who is more likely to be a peaceful presence when I bump into conflict, either that I'm, I'm a party to or, you know, people in front of me are, are really struggling. What, what's the difference between those moments when I really do sort of walk in and can help, can soothe, um, can encourage respect and embrace on the one hand, and the moments when I walk in and I, you know, make, get really reactive and make things you know, make things worse. Uh, I, I don't get this perfectly remotely, you know, ask members of my family. Um, but I really, really believe that we can practice, we can strengthen our spiritual muscles. Um, so I write about daily practices. How do I strengthen my capacity for compassion? How do I strengthen my capacity for Curiosity, to be, curio- to be curious even when my curiosity is shut down. Someone's hurt me, and I'm angry and wounded, and I really don't care what they think. But how do I, how do I unlock the curiosity to sort of wonder, what, what is this human being, I, what does it look like, you know, from, from their side? To strengthen my capacity for courage, sometimes to speak the truth in times that that's difficult. Um, and also the courage to take the risks that are needed for peacemaking. If I ne- need to come and tell someone that they've hurt me um, and I've really done my work and I'm able to do it in a fairly loving way, they may respond badly and they may, they may hit back. So there's a certain courage that's needed in order to step into those situations and not, um, and not to flee. Um, 
So I feel like I've been very blessed in this work and in this journey. Um, I've gotten more. Oh, humility is on is on that list too. I've gotten more humble in this. You know, first in the, you know, first flush of the call. I'm going like, to try to help in some way. You know, I'm a rabbi. I can you know influence. I don't know if I can influence American Jews to think about Palestinians as human beings. Maybe I can really help. I, you know, I haven't made any big. Uh, at, you can see how much success I've had. Um, but I've learned a lot, and one of the things that I feel like the, my call has morphed into trying to convince other people to uh, take on this commandment as their own personally and boldly in the midst of their lives. What might it mean for you in the middle of your life to be a seeker and a pursuer of peace? So I want to conclude by telling you why I uh, gave the book the title that I did. And, and luckily, the publisher um, uh, humored me. Um, so there's a text, there's a third century um, uh, Jewish wisdom text, uh, which asks a series of counterintuitive questions. It says, who is the person who is wise? What's the answer to that question? You, you know, somebody with a lot of book learning or, you know, a scholar. Mm -mm. The answer to that question is a person who learns from everyone. Who is wise? A person who loves from, who learns from everyone. There's a whole series of, like, wisdom teaches, teachings that turn our normal thinking on their heads. One of the questions is, um, who is a hero? Um, who is courageous? Um, you know, first, if I ask you, what's the first thing that comes up in your mind when I say, you know, who is courageous? You might think, you know, a firefighter running into a, you know, burning building, which surely, you know, is remarkably... Um, courageous, but the rabbis who author this text are looking for something um, a, a different level. Um, and one rabbi, there, there's always multiple answers to everything in Judaism, every Jewish text. If anybody says the Jewish view of such and such a subject is X, they're, they're just telling you, you know, this much. So the first answer to the question, who's, who, one of the texts says, who is, who is courageous? And the other text says, who is the most courageous of all? who is the hero of heroes. First, it says, one who conquers one's own impulse to evil, a person who does their own inner work. That person's a hero. And then someone else chimes in and says, the greatest of all heroes is a person who makes an enemy into a friend. And then I found an amazing parallel, almost an exactly par exact parallel text in the Quran. <laughs> this is totally it, you know, which I put in the front of the book. So that I love that text for many reasons, including the fact that the rabbis are, who author that are really saying, this is hard work. When we're hurt, we naturally contract and constrict and don't necessarily move into our best, most open, most loving, right? We move into self-protection um, mode. It is hard work. Um, and each and every one of us has the chance to, to do it. Um, the, one, one more thing. Uh, no, the, the uh, cover of the, of the book again. So um, I, I shopped the book around to a couple of Jewish publishers, and I have, for whatever reason, um, the Jewish publishers didn't take it. And I got, a, got myself a Roman Catholic publisher, um, uh, which is they do all kinds of justice work, uh, interreligious and justice work, part of a Catholic order. So we're um, 
they have the book and it's time to negotiate the cover and um, they want to be sure I liked the cover so you know, I gave them some images and some ideas which they liked for the cover and they, they did, that I liked and they didn't like it at all and they sent me some stuff that they liked and I didn't like it at all. And, you know, we got a couple of emails going back and forth and then this image shows up um, in, my, in my inbox. So I don't know if you can see that it's the, it's the inside of the Torah scroll. Right? If I went... If I went into the, the Holy Ark back there and, and opened it and took out the scroll and opened it, that's what the inside of the scroll looks with an olive branch. And, of course, I'm a rabbi, so the first thing I do, I see an image, but there are words on it, so first my eyes go straight to the image, and I think, where is the Torah scroll? Well, whoa, that's a nice in- image. Where is the scroll open to? And I look at the words, and it's open to Deut- Deuteronomy. I haven't told the story in a long time. I want to say 31. And it says, um, this thing is not far from you. Um, it is not up in the heavens that you should say, who's going to up, go up and get it for me? It's not across the, um, across the sea that you might say, who will go row across and come and bring this for me? It is as close as your mouth and your heart to do it. I called up the publisher. I said, That's, um, what a beautiful text you chose to put on the, tie, on the front of the book. Do you speak Hebrew? No, I don't speak Hebrew. Why do you ask, he says. Does the design, did the designer speak Hebrew? No. She pulled this off the web. So the image on the front of the book says... This, this subject of peacemaking, this possibility, this aspiration to be seekers and pursuers of peace in our lives. It may seem, it may seem that it is really, really hard. It is rocket science. Um, and, and the truth is, the spiritual truth is that it's, it's, it's close. It's in your heart. Um, uh, to do it. So I invite you, if you perhaps many of you are already conscious um, peace seekers, maybe you already think of yourself that way. If you don't yet, I hope that just for a moment I've succeeded in, in persuading you to ask yourself that question. What can I do to serve the cause of peace? Thank you so much for having me.